For January 17th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 133. You have knives on your shoes! Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, Hollywood, the movie industry, California, where not two miles from where I sit my fat ass down, uh, <laughs> the Hollywood Foreign Press a- <laughs> Agency, I- Association, Agency, whatever they are, HFPA, uh, has commandeered the hotel bar at the Beverly Hilton to give out <laughs> a couple little free drinks. drinks. <laughs> free drinks that they call the Golden Globes. <laughs> I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with Peter Fenzel and Mark Lee to overthink all manner of things. Uh, it's an awards night. Uh, we are skipping the award show to record <laughs> this podcast. Sacrifices we do for you guys. <laughs> I just I really wanted to watch the Golden Globes. <laughs> no, no, I really didn't. In case our, Sorry. you know, I don't know. Um, in case our utter lack of accountability ever, you know, put you off uh, and you needed proof that we are dedicated to you to squeezing out and pinching off fine entertainment. <laughs> Every week, uh, we are skipping the golden... We skipped the red carpet. We skipped the opening monologue. We skipped the, uh, you know, the announcement of Miss Golden Globe. I don't even... Is there, the, is there such a thing? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... The, uh, the really? awards. Yeah, the awards girl, the kind of like, you know, model who escorts you off is actually always the, um, the, the progeny of a Golden Globe winner. Uh, Oh, so it's, you know, it's been like, I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's a list. I'm sure if you Google, you can find a list, but, uh, I believe this year it's G it's Gia Mantegna, Montaigne. Oh, Oh, the daughter daughter of Joe Montaigne. That's awesome. (laughs) That's totally awesome. That Joe Montaigne's daughter is some sort of like Hollywood pinup or something. I don't know. Not a pinup. Spokesmodel or something. (laughs) I don't know. Um, and, uh, speaking of awards, uh, Miss America was awarded to a fetus, uh, <laughs> the other day, and I'm sure we're going to get to all of that. But first, the question of the week. Uh, it's an obscure question, but in honor of the Golden Globes, uh, here it is. Think of some area of human practice or activity that has an established uh, accolade, an established um, award that goes along with it. And uh, the question is, if you were to invent a second tier kind of award for this uh, area of human activity, um, what would it be? Uh, and, uh, and what would it be for? Uh, first in line, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? Very well. Good, excellent. I was I was thinking when we were talking about Joe Mantegna's daughter that like I had a flashback to searching for Bobby Fischer, being like, how many Miss Golden Globes go out there every time, afraid of losing their father's love? I mean, like all of them, all of them. Oh, that's for the Joe Mantegna fans in the audience. Um, that's my favorite Joe Mantegna movie, that movie, uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, where he and Joan Allen talk about raising little Josh Waitz kid in the chess player. Um, so this is actually an interesting question because I have been sort of keeping up with the Global StarCraft League in Korea, which is in its latest season, uh, Go, Idra, and Jinro, and whatnot. Uh, and, of course, they recently introduced a second tier. They had their, their Code S and now their Code A uh, leagues for this giant tournament. This is for a video game that is so popular in this country that it's bundled with Windows, right, and uh, a lot of the time, and that millions of people play it, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in prizes are awarded to the top pro players, like the top pro player is like dates movie star and it's it's very intense it's like very intense in that in that country um, and they recently introduced this code A, which is like second tier, uh, which has a certain number of slots devoted to people who aren't Korean, to foreigners, because otherwise everybody a Korean who's Korean is so much better than everybody who isn't Korean that there isn't much of a competition. So is it explicitly not Korean or is it just like a second tier points and ability and things like that? 
um, that just so happens to line up with all the people who aren't Korean. Oh, no, no, no. The second tier isn't all not Korean. The second tier has a couple of slots in it reserved for people who aren't Korean, just in case no non-Koreans are good enough to make it into the second tier. I mean, that's not true. There are a couple of people, and I, I cited a couple of them earlier, who are from Europe and North America and other places who aren't Korean, who are good enough to play among the best players in the world, but there are not many of them. There's like a few of them. One of them moved there a long time ago. The big, the best American player uh, is a guy by the name of Greg Fields, who goes by the name Idra and has a reputation for having terrible manners and just like <laughs> it's like saying saying rude things to people and like not telling them good game when the game is over uh, and like like and actually and cursing them out and calling them things. Uh, and he's been over there for a long time, uh, so uh, so he's the best non-Korean in the world. Well, there's another one who fights with him. I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. I do want to have a dedicated StarCraft either poster or podcast at some point in the future because it's really interesting. But the thing that I would add is um and then the thing is a lot of these things already have these sorts of things like i could say the congressional medal of honor and add like the congressional medal of sort of honor but there are already so many medals and accolades and like the military and in congress that that's kind of not as much fun and so um what i will add uh is for the nobel prizes and i'm sure that there are lots and lots of awards that people who are up for nobel prizes could win but i want to see a second tier of nobel prizes for the the best um, scientific work, uh, mostly geared towards experimentation, right? right. Or, or the theoretical work can, can work out as well. The best scientific work that led to a negative result for a hypothesis, right? Because I feel like that's not nearly emphasized enough. Everybody's like, oh my God, this person discovered DNA. And, and nobody's like, oh my God, like this person failed to discover like the magical juice in our blood that makes gremlins turn our <laughs> organs on. You know, like, like, like nobody, nobody pays enough attention. So science, in, science in, in the sort of pursuit of science, um, the professional pursuit of science is very biased towards getting positive results from your hypotheses with the result that institutionalized science is too conservative in a lot of ways and a lot of money goes chasing after very safe projects and it can be hard to make, break new ground. This can be very frustrating for scientists. This is my own experience talking to them and living with them and having them on the podcast um, and other things like that and having them be friends of mine and living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. These things are all common. I spent a lot of this weekend at the MIT Mystery Hunt, for example. Um, what a bunch of nerds. <laughs> it's great. It's so much fun. The mystery um, is, that the, is that the absurdly hard scavenger hunt? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, you're it's, you're oh, going to have to tell us. You're going to have to tell us more about it, but, but uh, answer the question first. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I want to see um, – because every time you, you conduct an experiment, you find out something that doesn't work. You are doing science. Like that is legitimate. And that a lot of the time when you pick an experiment that works, it's, you're just lucky. Like, like if, I have ten, if I have to do 10 experiments, I just have to pick one to do first, right? And, uh, and all 10 are sort of reasonable given what I know about the situation. And nine of them are going to give me negative results and one of them is going to be a positive result. And 10 people each do one of them. The one who gets it – gets a PhD and everybody else has to sit around for another five years. And that's not fair. Right. Like, because it's, it's the same, it's the same value that's being added to society by everybody making all of these different endeavors. Like so it's the, it's the um, like, uh, if you, you know, I don't know if you fail to discover that, a certain nutritional supplement increases fat loss or something like that. Exactly, exactly. And not just like, oh, I disproved something everybody thought, I'm awesome. Just like, I pursued this line, and it didn't work. And I pursued it, like, very thoroughly, and I used, like, ingenious methods, and I was very thorough, and and, and I just didn't find out that it was true. Right. Um, Absolutely. The, and, and the I think control subjects have, did yeah. not put cinnamon in their coffee. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're reading the four-hour body, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm down seven pounds since reading that book. Guilty. Um, which is pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, I feel like there needs to be high-profile public acknowledgement of the people who do great work not discovering things. Um, because that way we don't have to bias ourselves so much. Uh, and and it, just, it just stinks that that's We're where causing, the funding... You know, you know what those people, the, the service that those people are providing to uh, the culture and the economy and the society at large is they're crossing things off the list. Yes, you know? exactly. Because huh? like it's not uh, a list is not useful only when you circle things. A list is useful when you can circle certain things and cross other things off. Yep. It's also useful when you can stars next to the things or whether you can highlight them. And sometimes you can cut it up into small pieces and you can blow it and then you force Aeneas to pick them up and try to put them back in order. So we can find out where he's supposed to found the city of Rome uh, and all that other stuff. 
But yeah, yeah. So that's what I would say. I would say that there would be a Nobel. There would be like a Nobel no cigar prize uh, for the people who got close but no cigar. <laughs> a set of steak knives, if you will. Exactly. The set of the Nobel set of steak knives. <laughs> you still have to make the people. <laughs> you still have to make the people who actually discover things like get acknowledged because you want to aggrandize the discovery. But there should be high high profile acknowledgement of people who do hard work to empirically demonstrate that certain hypotheses are not are not correct right so awesome. um all right well good excellent mark lee second tier award ceremony all right second tier award ceremony it's the first tier award ceremony for intellectually tilted pop culture writing is the let's say the onion av club second tier would be starting your own blog and podcast like overthinking it self diss oh i'm just kidding mostly um, no, well, someone in the past has, I think, compared us to a, a, a sort of a, a poor man's Onion AV Club, which I would dispute that because we're, no, because the we're Onion not, AV Club is already for poor people, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> by, no, which mean, by which you mean writers? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, uh. No, my well, I don't really have a serious answer to this. So my, my second snarky answer to this question is: if the Ultimate Fighting Championship purports to uh, find the <laughs> ultimate fighter. Perhaps we need the penultimate fighting championship for the ultimate fighter. And right. not really so to give a second tier for all these other sort of, you know, mixed martial artists to duke it out and get some sort of uh, some sort of award. It's no, more just yeah. to bring it's more just to bring out the grammar snobs who are gonna say, like, well, actually, penultimate does not refer to second tier, it's just second to last. It's, uh, the, the penultimate fighting championships are for like bar fights or something, or for yeah. you know I mean? for fights that are yeah. not awesome, for just really embarrassing <laughs> fights where a bunch of drunk yeah. guys kind of pound at each other and roll around on the floor a little bit. Right, right, right. That would be pretty cool. Or getting taken out by a bouncer, you know, getting boisterous. <laughs> it's it's for the best, you know, taking a shot in the mouth from the bouncer. Could we do like the ultimate pre-fighting negotiation championships <laughs> where people are like trying to talk down ultimate fighters <laughs> each other <laughs> and, and, and like sometimes you win and the fight doesn't happen and sometimes you lose and you have to go inside the octagon because like that be, uh, that, that's what precedes a fight right is like the, the desperate attempts to prevent the fight from happening <laughs> although maybe it is, like, you could reverse it and be like who can successfully goad people who just happen to have like a broad array of mixed martial arts skills into fighting each other for sport so like you could have like the ultimate goading championships the <laughs> ultimate yeah that'd okay. be great here's here's my actual uh answer to this or uh, another sort of lower tier fighting championship type of thing is actually organize ice hockey fighters into a organized tournament for this because i don't know how if you guys have watched a lot of ice hockey like nhl ice hockey obviously not other sort of levels because it's not institutionalized in the same way as it is in the nhl um but it's just sort of a strange culture and ritual about the fist fight in hockey in which you know the two fighters they square off against each other no one else can involve you know like if it's like a scrum in football it sort of like can becomes a big pylon sort of thing but it's an old school physical duel type of thing and uh you know the, sometimes it typically ends in a draw but oftentimes you will see a clear winner of the fight you know in terms of punches landed or you know wrestling the other guy to the ground and that sort of thing it's entertaining. It's a strange culture and it's entertaining. I would love to see that just sort of, you know, rather than having to, you know, like one out of every two or three hockey games, sitting through those to look wait for your fight is just you organize it all into like one amazing three hour event with like 10 cards. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if they're doing it to win the fight, then don't you have to do something about their skates, right? Because that's what Jordan always says. Whenever we're watching a hockey game, he's like, you have knives on your shoes! Right? Like, <laughs> that's what he always yells at the hockey games. Uh, <laughs> Which is awesome. Um, Jordan is, of course, Stokes uh, on the Overthinking It, uh, who has been in our podcast many times, but uh, is sadly getting back geared up for the semester again and wasn't able to join us for the podcast tonight. But yeah, so, I mean, would, how would you regulate the use of your, your skates as weapons? Is that not a problem because it's so important to not fall over? Because you can't really wrestle, right? Like, once you fall, like, you're pretty much down, right? Well, is yeah, and, it, and also, what? like, also, also the vital parts are covered with tons of body armor on hockey. Okay. Right? Fair. So that's sort of the best you could do is like, well, to to bring your skate up to the level, of being able to sort of slice someone's face. Um, that's like, what, is that, what is that called in Blades of Glory when they do that? It's called the Iron Lotus, right? Think, yeah. the, the secret <laughs> illegal North Korean. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, if you could do that, if you could, like jumping swip, swiping move to just like decapitate the other guy, that would be pretty. They need to. That's the kind of thing where like you shouldn't wait until after it happens to make a rule against it. Uh, <laughs> 
but that's, that's what's kind of about this. Like, uh, you know, in all seriousness, about the ritual and the honor code of these hockey fights. Like, there's all these sort of rules about them. You know, one of which being that you know other people will not intervene. I think I'm going to go on a limb and say that no slicing of people's heads off with their skate is one of those unwritten rules of ice hockey fights, which is well understood by all participants. I'm be going careful. to go on a limb. Be careful, because if you're on that limb and there's that guy out there slicing people's heads off with his hockey skates, he can cut that limb down pretty easily. Because <laughs> he has knives pop. on his shoes. Knives <laughs> on your shoes. <laughs> Definitely. Excellent. Touche, Fenzel. Touche. <laughs> That is Mark Lee. I would like to. Uh, I would like to propose this for my second tier awards. Uh, I'm sure we're all aware of the MacArthur uh, Foundation Fellowships, which is, um, <laughs> of course, <laughs> uh, popularly called the Genius Grants, uh, uh-huh. which is a, a fellowship of I think half a million dollars given to people in various fields of endeavor uh, on the basis of their great work or their interesting work, and the uh, MacArthur Foundation just feels that these people ought to be. Uh, given money to make their uh, to make them independent, more or less, so that they can continue to do their work unfettered by uh, a lot of the administrative or institutional um, hurdles that go along with with raising funds. Uh, you know, if you're a playwright, you don't have to actually um, go through the tedious business of getting your plays produced in order to write your your genius plays. Or if you're a scientist, you don't have to spend all your time on those pesky grant applications. You have money. You can just do it. Though half a million dollars, honestly, doesn't buy you that much science these days. Never mind. They give, they, they give money out, and these things are called the genius grants. What I would like... Um, to propose is is a uh, not a grant but an award a um, uh, a uh, inkjet printed certificate <laughs> given to people who are uh, meeting expectations and it's called the uh, it's called the uh, the gentleman's bee foundation um, award uh, for mediocrity and uh, <laughs> if, if you do something uh, at a level where you are just okay. Uh, you can get one of these. Uh, you can get one of these awards, um, and uh, you can get one of these awards and enjoy it. You know, uh, on perhaps framed on your wall uh, in front of your your desk in your cubicle at work. Speaking That's of awesome. cubicle at work, Matt, these awards are in fact giving out given out in office spaces uh, on a regular basis in American workplaces. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you have a real job, they're called morale boosters. You know. <laughs> They're not just. Oh, they're not usually called morale boosters. That's kind of a cynical thing. Well, that's that's what I, that's what I call them. Cause I'm <laughs> no, I got I've gotten uh, nine awards at work in the past couple of years uh, for for my above average performance uh, at work. It's been very exciting. Um, but but what? But if, yeah, what yeah. if your award were for like attendance or something? You know. Yeah, we have that. We gave those. We give those awards out. Oh, we don't do that. Huh. In the governmental your- institution that I that I um, that I work for. You're supposed to go to work. You would think. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the culture. I mean, this is the culture of like the participation ribbon. You know what I mean? Where, where just meeting, yeah. just meeting the minimum standard is now grounds to be recognized rather than you know um, exceeding expectations in some way. See, I thought when you said you were going to find a second tier grant for the genius grant, it was going to be like the 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 like smart guy grant or yeah, something, or like what's the, that, the genius? The, yeah. the really quite bright grants, <laughs> <laughs> where it's like you give a grant to somebody who figures out how to like drain all of the water out of your can of beans, right? Uh, when you're using it, yeah, 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 something like that. Um, Absolutely. Or or the guy who is helping you move in. Who suggests this completely convoluted and yet ultimately successful plan for maneuvering the couch around the corner <laughs> and up the yep. stairs? That guy is yeah. really quite bright, and uh, yeah, I think that person deserves recognition. All right, that's a better uh, that's a better second tier award than the one that I have. <laughs> well, here's the thing: is that like, and we Pete, run into this. I'd like to what? present you with a really quite bright award. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming much. up with the really quite bright award. For coming up with the really quite bright awards, Pete. Well, this, this is, you are yeah. really quite bright. At oh, thank you. Like, is, this, is this an endlessly recursive award? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We get into loops. We get to integer overflow, and then we have problems praising each other. Uh, actually, no. We've we've long ago discovered that even if we loop, oh, if we we crash over on integer overflow, we keep talking about ourselves. <laughs> this is not. Uh, we're going to keep knocking that uh, that turtle shell into the into yeah. the staircase. 
The, um, no, yeah. it's the uh, it's well, it's turtle shells all the way down. Uh, it, no, it's the uh, it's the RA. It's the RA award. The RA oh, award. Okay. Award. What does RA the, stand for? There. Uh, well, it stands for RA award. You know, the first letter stands for RA, and the second letter stands for award. And then oh, interesting. Interesting. That was a long way around the barn to that joke. Never mind. No, no, it's fine. So I want to I point out like what we were just talking about here, right, which is uh, what's the meta conversation going on at the moment? It's that when you find a, a pattern like, or when you find a value, right, and you're trying to identify the scale that it's on, that's something that we have to do in, uh, in improv a lot, like a little sort of window, like look behind the curtain, right, where um, if you identify a certain quality and then you try to like heighten and maximize that quality in a scene, which would be like if, a, you know, say you have like a, a mother and daughter – who are fixing a car, right? And I just get a phone call, and I'm going to silence it because this person knows I'm doing the podcast, and I should have told them, or I did tell them, and they Hi, know. Perry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, so, so, so you you're, so you're finding out. So there's a mother and daughter fixing a car, right? And it turns out that the daughter who's five is like really awesome at fixing the car, right? And and you don't really understand why, how, or why. And so you want to heighten that, right? And it's like it turns out the little girl also knows how to fix a space shuttle, and she can do open heart surgery when the mom has a heart attack, and like she can do all this crazy stuff, right? And the trick is often to figure out like what exactly is the thing that we're trying to maximize sure. here. So with the genius grant thing, are we trying to maximize like the like is it like sort of the the awesomeness of the thing and is and and by backing off of that do we look at something that's like like diametrically less awesome do we have to go to sort of negative is it like awesome results mediocre result bad results or is it like smart person kind of smart person not a smart person right so that's sort of different continua and distinguishing between these continua is a big part of establishing the patterns everybody's noticing uh subconsciously and that's a big part in uh writing comedies in particular um and in performing comedies because so much of those things involve freezing everything else and taking one aspect of it and just pulling it way out of proportion Right. Um, I'm reminded of the scene in Talladega Nights where uh, Ricky Bobby thinks that he can't walk again. That whole sequence. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they hide that. that. And they really hide it because it what because the thing he's talking about is a real thing. He's like got in a crash and he's got he's afraid like he's afraid to get back in a car. Um, and so they heighten it so that he's like in a wheelchair, like going around, like thinking he's going to die. He's never going to walk again. And he like comes to terms with it. And he gets to the point, you know, where it really goes over the edge where he decides that his spine is severed and his legs are, are have no feeling anymore. And therefore he can stab himself in the leg with a knife and he won't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where it like goes over the edge. And there's that, and then there's that sort of orchestral uh, crescendo and like the, the big moment where he stabs himself in the leg and then he's like screaming and everybody's like wrestling with him and trying to stop him. And it's awful. And then after that, like it's done. It's like the sort of orgasm of the arc and then it's over. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. It's always fun to kind of figure out that one thing. Like, what is that one thing in this particular run of things that is like scaling while everything else is remaining constant? Because you try to scale too many things at once, it just because really confusing. Okay, like, so let's let's apply that then to award shows. Was sort of the, was the genesis of our conversation, right? Oh, okay, okay. So, so I think at the one end of the spectrum clearly is the Academy Awards. At the other end of the spectrum is, um, you know, random live journal, the twelfth graders' live journal <laughs> of the best movies I saw this year. Well, here's the thing is that award shows try not to do this. Like they try really hard not to do this because they try really hard to make sure that they're not exactly on the same continuum as the other award shows. Because who wants to – because award shows are about – what are award shows about? They're about being watched on TV, right? It's like yep. award shows are about the show being successful as an endeavor in itself, right? Yep. They're not really about – with the possible exception of like the SAG Awards because that's sort of about the legitimacy of SAG as an organization. Um, but like the, the Oscar <laughs> – yeah. Sorry. A diss from nope. a member of the Screen Actors Guild? Yes, I, I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild. They, <laughs> they, wow, sometimes it feels like actors couldn't find their hands with both, uh, with their ass with both hands in a flashlight. Um, and that's that's hard. Support. You ever tried that before? Finding your ass with both hands and a flashlight? Yeah, because where do you put the flashlight? You have to like hold it in your mouth or something. <laughs> so anyway, so SAG has to do that because they do have sometimes problems legitimizing themselves. And I live in Boston where SAG is also present because a lot of movies get filmed here. It's a very different organization here than it is in uh, in California, um, right? Where, where here it's like smaller pockets of people and the people who are volunteering to run things are often like background actors. And, and it's just like it, – but they're still trying to hold the organization together and it's really hard because there's so much non-union stuff and and people – um, and there's so, not a lot of union stuff, so it's kind of tough. There's not a, necessarily always a huge amount. And I've never been to a meeting or anything like that, so please don't think of me as a snitch or anything. Um, but, like, my sense from various, like, 
overhearing various conversations over the years, is that like there is a certain amount of tension between doing union work and doing non-union work um, because there really isn't ever going to be enough union work to support people in Boston. So like, what's the role of SAG, right? Um, and, but they, of course, want to make sure that they're, everybody wants to get in the union so it can make at least a mile, minimum, minimum, even half of a minimum wage doing this kind of work. Um, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, so award shows try to differentiate themselves, right? So the People's Choice Awards, great. That would be a great example is if it didn't have the People's Choice angle, it would be like a third or fourth tier award show, right? Well, I mean it is uh, a third or fourth tier award show, but – It is, and that's the thing. is like they're not really – that's its point. They're not really successfully differentiating themselves. Or the other award shows are kind of taking up their space, right? So I think maybe longer ago when it was harder to get people's feedback on things – the People's Choice Awards were more unique because nowadays you can run an Insta poll on Oscar.com and find out, like, you know, in a matter of minutes what everybody thinks. And then you can put that on TV and everybody feels like they're participating and you're engaging the audience, right? You could do that. And in fact, like, even if Oscar themselves doesn't do it, there's hundreds of other pages and there's Twitter doing it constantly and all this other stuff. So the People's Choice ends up not having as much of its its angle anymore and has to reinvent itself. And I think it's reinvented himself, itself as like we want to be the one where the stars go to get really drunk. Or is that the Golden Globes? Where <laughs> it's like these are these are less these are like the big parties. Like you can watch the Oscars, which is all like people in dresses, or you can watch People's Choice Awards where like, you know, freaking Matthew McConaughey is high or something. I don't know. Well no that <laughs> like, is uh, that is supposed to be the Golden Globes and everyone, you know, oh, there there is real booze at the tables and uh, you know and things like this. Um, right. Okay. As opposed, as opposed well, to yeah. the Oscars, where you have to go out into the lobby to get a drink. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you get somebody to fill your seat while you're gone, there is, which is yeah, pretty there, awesome. There is an army of, of seat fillers uh, at the Oscars. There's a goal. The Golden Globes are the foreign press, right? And then they're also the one that's a party. So they've done a pretty good job of distinguishing themselves from the Oscars. Plus, they put themselves up as the sort of predictor for the Oscars, which well, right, the other but award it's, shows. I, but it's another. I mean, it's another thing. They're they're in a way the most crass, right, of the of the award shows because they're it, it's this shadowy seventy five person organization. No one quite knows. Uh, no one quite knows how it all works, and um, and they do things like you know the tourist. Uh, the film with Angelina Jolie and Johnny Depp got a lot of nominations this year, one for uh, Ms. Jolie and one for Mr. Depp, uh, despite being uh, craptastic uh, by, <laughs> by all accounts, because they were, you know, they were, they were giving out things to cast their, their television special. You know, they were, they were giving out nominations so that people will show up and they can have this... Uh, they can have oh, because they want Johnny Depp in the audience, so they they nominate him for. They a want terrible him on the movie. red carpet, and they want him in the audience, yeah. and they you know what I mean. Right. Maybe they want him to present an award or or uh, you know or something something like this. So it's, it's so they nominated it's, burlesque, so they get to get Cher's uh, ghoulish uh, face on on TV screen. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And probably Christina Aguilera too, right? Oh yeah, Christina. Yeah, yeah that too. Really. So the. Uh, <laughs> Right, I I think that th- that the quality that's that's um, that's really kind of the commodity of scarcity is what is legitimacy, isn't it, or um, uh, credibility uh, in these things? And I, I mean, I was thinking about the SAG Awards because it's the one that you brought up with with credibility. It's um, it's a special case, isn't it? Because all the guilds, uh, you know, all the entertainment industry guilds give out awards. You know, the producers guild gives out awards. The directors guild gives right. out awards. The writers guild gives <clears throat> out awards. The screen actors right. guild uh, gives out awards. Yeah. But SAG is the only one uh, that gets put on TV because it's the only one where the actors show up, and that's who. Those, yeah. are, the, those are the people who you watch. You know, everyone else yeah. works behind the scenes. So that's the one that has a that has a uh, a shot at at getting on TV. The um, uh, you know, so it's a, it, it really is kind of a special case. It ought to be this. Um, it ought to be this kind of quiet b- behind closed doors things, uh, and it's um, it's just gotten this. It's just gotten this attention, and you know, SAG is happy to get the attention because uh, yeah, it's um, totally impossible to get your membership work. <laughs> or, yeah. you know. Well, I, I've definitely. I'd love to see the the w- global awards, global gaffer guild awards would be great. The triple G's. Where it's like all the best gaffers from all of the different uh... gaffing guilds. Yeah, the gaffing guilds. The various gaffing guilds could have a gaffers guild g- g- ground about. There's no word for fight. <laughs> what? What would be? Gar- I, I would like to watch the cinematographers' awards because I'll bet mm. the clips. I mean, I'll bet the clips that they roll to kind of demonstrate the nominees' work would just be glorious. You know, I did 
the World Stunt Awards once with Matt, with Blinky, when we were living together in New York. And it was the year that Triple uh, X won a lot of awards. The World <laughs> Stunt Awards were really interesting because all the movies that won were terrible. Uh, well, that's not true. Triple X isn't terrible, terrible, but it's pretty bad. But, I mean, like, the, the thing is they were so amazed – at these various specific movies uh, um, that got no praise from anybody. So it would be like Ballistic X versus Sever was one of the big movies that year. Ballistic X versus Sever won like best stunt, won all these different awards for best stunt, uh, best stunts and best wire stunts and all this other stuff. And that's, of course, an, an action. It's a buddy spy action movie starring Lucy Liu and Antonio Banderas that has the uh, notable distinction of being. I believe the worst reviewed movie ever on Rotten Tomatoes, and if not like the very, very worst, like currently, then like has held the title at some point, uh, just being like totally, totally worst movie ever. But the World Stunt Awards were like, oh man, like look, they jumped two cars parallel to each other off ramps next to each other and spun them over at the same rate, like as they landed on the far side of this ravine. Like that's amazing. No one's ever done it before. But meanwhile, it's like, and then Lucy Liu walks on and is like, you thought you were right, McTavish. But you were wrong about me. Machine Gun. And it's like, oh, this movie's so bad. Um, and then the other movies were Blade Trinity was big that year. It does, that was have, the year that- it does have a 0% uh, score on the tomato meter. Oh, you didn't believe me that Ballistic X versus Sever is like the worst reviewed movie ever? Well, I, I, uh, I don't know. I just I looked it up. So it has a zero percent. But are there other movies with a zero percent? I'm going to I'm going to uh, clearly further further research is um, is indicated. I may disprove your hypothesis, Pete. In which case, I'll be that's, eligible that's for an award. Uh, there's also um, there's also you know there's that phenomenon where you can make something look like something else, saying like oh like Mark Lee doing bench presses makes Arnold Schwarzenegger look like a kitty cat, right? It's true. And, like, with movies, uh, you can make things look like Citizen Kane a lot by being worse than them. And I'm wondering what's the worst movie that we can make look like Citizen Kane. So I'd be like, I'd be like Ballistic X vs. Sever makes Ultraviolet look like Citizen Kane. Uh-huh. Ultraviolet being a fairly similar but very different uh, movie about futuristic dystopian vampires starring Mila Jovovich, uh, where it's like they live in, like, a, it's sort of like, it's kind of got a ghost to the machine kind of vibe to it, but they're vampires. It's really bad. Um, but there's like a motorcycle chase up the side of a building, which is really nice and amazing. And like all looks like a music video from like a techno European, like music video competition, but with Hollywood budgets. Um, but yeah, I would definitely think that a ballistic X versus ever makes certain things look like Citizen Kane. But that was also the year in the world stunt awards where that guy in triple X was doing that parasailing stunt. And they did it once where he's, he's parasailing behind a, uh, Oh, is this the worst one? You you just posted a link to the worst, the worst. Uh, it's the movies. worst Rotten Tomatoes rated movies from two thousand to two thousand and nine. And there's a handful of movies on the last page which have a zero percent rating. I don't know what uh, uh, criteria they use to to you know rank those with you know within the zero percent movies how to rank them. But Ballistic X versus Ever is the is listed as the worst movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just barely edging out one missed call, starring. Uh, Ed Burns in a horror movie. But yeah, but I'm saying there's a, there's a triple X stunt where a guy on a parasail, um, they, they have him duck under the, the arch of a bridge. And the first time they did it, it didn't look close enough and didn't look exciting enough. So the director had them do it again. And the second time the stunt man hit the bridge and died. Oh, and it was like this experienced stunt man, like who had been doing stunts for years and years and years. And it was a lot of pour out emotion for this guy. And he got this special award. The award show was hosted by Dennis Hopper. It was on the Spike Network. Uh, and it was funny because they kept making Dennis Hopper do crazy things, but it wasn't really him. It was a stunt man. So like he'd fall from the ceiling and then he'd like, there'd be a big puff of smoke and then he, he would walk out just fine. And it was obvious that a stunt man had done the other thing. It was pretty cool. But yeah, so I've watched the World Stunt Awards. We talked about the Cinematography Awards, which would be cool to watch. The, Gaffer, the Global Gaffer Guild Awards, which would be funny because they would just – it would all be people hanging up lights and like running electrical tape and stuff, right? Because that's what gaffers do, right? Is like they, they do a lot of the electricity and like the engineering of those environments. Um, probably a pretty um, hoity-toity way of saying it. But yeah, I mean – I mean they gaff. I, they get, How much more obvious could that be? They gaff. They have best boys too, right, which is important. Because it is important for people to aspire to things, so that's why you have to have best boys, so that the second best boys. There's a great thing you can produce. <laughs> <laughs> that's us, Uh-oh. though. We we have the market on that. We're the second best boys. The second best boys. Oh man. Oh, so like hey, what shop. about this? Uh, what about this um, uh, Miss America thing, where a a seventeen year old girl was was crowned Miss America? 
Yeah, 17 year old girl whose roots are showing. This is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> this just is 17 year old bottle blonde. Wow. Yeah, that's that's great. That's we're having yeah, yeah. We're having so, so let's eating it too on the <laughs> Well, that's that just shows how terrible I am that I'm like, oh her hair. Like what was her talent? Like like do we playing, know what her talent piano. was? Playing piano. Is she good at piano? Uh, well, I didn't watch the awards. I just read that in the CNN article that I uh, read it, to it was playing in a restaurant where where I was eating dinner and which was very distracting because the uh, swimwear competition um was also on during that time, which we dubbed the underwear competition because it really Seemed like that. Anyway, but it, it, I don't know. She wasn't, definitely wasn't playing like Mozart or anything. I couldn't beat the sound wasn't on, so we couldn't hear it. But it was all like, uh, her hands like sort of like going, I'm going to tap my microphone to simulate the motion. It was like, like that for the, like an entire, like three minute long song. So she was playing like some sort of wolf mother song on the piano. No, not even as complicated as a wolf mother song. That's good. Again, too much, too much rhythmic complexity. There, it was like that. That's what it looked like. It would have sounded like, right? But if but if she were finger tapping that on an electric guitar, you think it would be awesome? Like if she were playing the that be squeedly versus. Well, okay, so for like maybe like twenty seconds or so, that'd be cool. But again, this is what all I saw for a solid couple minutes or so. So so let's talk about Miss America for a second. Cause like, no, let's keep talking about the piano performances none of us saw, but only I watched on TV. <laughs> it wouldn't matter if I'd seen it, to hear it to know if it's any good. Um, so Miss America, uh, the, we ta- we've been talking about kind of uh, the essential qualities of things that distinguish them, right? Yep. And, and when we're measuring the best and worst of something, uh, or when we're trying to make something funny by extracting a certain truth from it and heightening that thing, um, there's, there's always some sort of quintessential, well, quintessential is the wrong word, but some sort of quality to isolate, a sort of demarcating symbolic quality that is the thing that we are paying attention to in a given situation. Yep. So for Miss America, this thing is – this America is interesting because Miss America tests a whole bunch of seemingly unrelated things, but it definitely has like a, that one thing that it's trying to test, which is different from Miss USA and Miss Universe and Miss Hawaiian Tropic and all of the other um, pageants, I think, culturally, which I think is this sort of like idealization of, of Miss – uh, and I think it has something to do with like marriageability, right? Is like the general is that the idea that this is like either an ideal of chasteness and like virtue, or like something having to do with like uh, like like what 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 is Miss America the best of? Because it's not like women are going around in their real lives being like, hey, I'm going to go home today and like wear a swimsuit and play piano and talk about politics. Yeah, but it's like you know, like sort of like it's something to do with the American spirit, isn't it? It's like this this well, person who, who best exemplifies. Uh, you know, something, something that we consider to be um, uh, essential about uh, ourselves. Well, let's, let's, let's step away because the boilerplate copy on beauty pageants is awful. Right. I mean, it's good because it gets people to keep watching beauty pageants, even though they're freaking barbaric. But um, but like the boilerplate copy explaining to you why hey, you're the one you... complaining about a root showing, Pete. I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was just saying is that like I was I'm the hugest hypocrite here. So, for example, in this CNN article that we're looking at, um, Miss, Miss America aims to provide personal and professional opportunities for young women to promote their voices in culture, politics, and the community. Now, if I were to want to do that, how do you think I would go about doing this? Like, do you think I would corral a bunch of women and make them dress up in pretty outfits and have them on a stage somewhere and, like, have them – and I guess that's the idea. The idea – they justify themselves by saying, well, they're giving scholarships, right? But they could give scholarships for anything. Like, they could make right. them race remote cars and give scholarships. Like, why are they making them put on swimsuits? Why are they making them put on evening gowns when right. people don't even do that kind of formal partying anymore all that much, even on the highest levels of society, right? Like, I mean, I guess people do do, like, white, white tie and black tie dinners, but they're really rare, like, even for the wealthy, right? Like, you do actual formal dress like have you, have you watched gossip girl then it happened every week on gossip girl unless you're well i mean unless you live in new york in which case a lot of a lot of the assumptions about what is normal get thrown out the window yeah i mean i don't know I, my sense is that uh those i mean if you look at a etiquette book from even like 50 years ago you find out exactly all of the different ways you're supposed to dress for different sort of social engagements. And these things would be just as true for people in kind of the middle class as the people in the upper class. Like you get invited to go out to dinner, like you bring your hat. Like it would be absurd not to bring your hat to go out, right? Like, um, and there's these rules that you follow. And I, and I feel like Miss America is kind of connected to a lot of these rules. And a lot of the things that they're doing are connected to a lot of these rules. I mean, I don't believe for a second that their main goal is to like empower women. 
right? Like, because that doesn't make any sense. Because it's like, why? I mean, why are they? Because that's just too vague. Like, it's too vague based on the specific things that they are specific things they are making these women do, right? So, like, what is the thing that they're actually trying to get these women to do by making them jump through all these hoops? Like, like, what is the the virtue that they're trying to draw out? Well, um, it's. I mean, you know, it, look, it was a show, wasn't it? An Atlantic City thing before it was a national, um, nationally televised. Uh, spectacular right so i mean they're trying to they're trying to sell advertising time against pictures of pretty girls is you know is the thing and the the whole that the whole kind of purported rationale of it is a lot of scaffolding that's come in after the fact right so it starts out as a straight up beauty pageant and this sort of part of the beauty pageant tradition which is similar to sort of the county fair tradition of showing off your pig right where it's like oh like i raised this wonderful living thing look how awesome i am um, you know, it's just like, cause it's very objectifying, right? And it's like, it's very dehumanizing. I don't know. I, re- I really, uh, like <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for Miss America right now. And it's just so awful. Um, are you reading the part about race? Yeah. Oh my God. Where it's like rule number seven states the contestants must be of good health and of the white race. And it's just like, it's just, that's awful. It's not just awful. Cause it's like, oh, I'm black and I don't get to be there. It's like, and they must have all their teeth. And it's just, it's like such dehumanization. It's awful. Like, it's like, you know, like they're, they're flesh and blood. They're being like trotted out there and marked for meat. Um, and, and, and of course it's like African-American women aren't allowed until 1970. And that's just, and so it's, it's racist and terrible. And it sort of shows you the connection between the dehumanization in a general sense and, and racism in a specific sense, right? Like how, if you ever want to know kind of why it can be important to pursue ideological, um, commitment to certain key principles, you can see how these things spill over and, and affect things in a more material way. Like, I'm more interested in people who are interested in super circumventing or overcoming this objectification and, and dehumanization than I am people who are very specifically interested in changing the slider on, like, which given, you know, chunk of meat gets to be on the Miss America stage and which doesn't, Right. Um, like that's not as much of a, of a matter of interest. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, is that where, where beauty pageants come from? Just like this idea of like showing off and being the prettiest. Um, I mean, and that's what Miss, Miss America is basically like got a whole bunch of money dropped in its lap and was like, oh crud, like we want to be able to keep doing this cause we like doing it, but we have to change with the times, right? We have to stay current, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, I mean, no, I think it, I, I think it's exactly, I think it's exactly that. I think it's, it's, um. Oh, I, this is one of my go-to comparisons, isn't it? But I think it's the spate of marriages at the end of a, of a Shakespeare play, right? right. The, the, the attraction of this play is that you get to see a woman have sex with a donkey. You know? That's... that's... <laughs> <laughs> the Midsummer Night's Dream is what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so in the in no, 17th was, century, thinking, before yeah. there was the internet, they had the Globe Theater. Yeah. Like that's your, you know, to satisfy your bestiality. Right, yeah. Exactly. I was saying, I mean, nice. no, I, I was actually thinking about, about Hamlet, the, uh, you know, the yeah. bad first quarto text that has the donkey humping scene in the, uh, <laughs> you know, you know uh, <laughs> in the middle I can, of the I can fourth act. One, I can broaden it one more step. I can broaden it one more step if you want, because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Because I think a lot of these institutions that developed in the 20th century as America was kind of growing its media culture and looking for things to watch. Like, I agree. There are certain things that you want to watch. And there's a, and I don't want to criticize people for wanting to watch things. Like, I have no problem tuning into a movie because the woman in it is hot. Like, no problem with that at all. And I don't consider that to be particularly dehumanizing. I mean, maybe there's an objectification going on, but it's not like systematically being done to try to impinge upon people's lives, and it doesn't have as much political force. Like, the actual damage that's done from, like, you know, watching a trashy movie is, like, pretty small pretty minimal. I'm not really that concerned about it. What I am concerned about, though, is that when these institutions that are built around these sorts of spectacles grow so much in the, in the complexity, sophistication, infrastructure, and the degree to which people depend on them for their livelihoods, that they just jump through this looking glass, and they, they get to a point where, for me, I start really worrying about um, the harm that they might be doing as they continue to sort of uh, have failed to to hold up what their initial drive was all about in the first place. So, and I would, I would, be, you could be talking about the entertainment industry, you know, as a whole, couldn't you? That I'm, I am, you know, that, <laughs> okay. well, doing. good. I mean, and I, you know, and I mean, not just porn, right? Like the the oh, no. the, the idea main thing that, that was, was sports, but sports oh, okay. and 
uh, being like, because sports are, I, I love sports, right? I love sports, watch sports, play sports. Um, but if sports get to a point in civil society where people are born into sports and they are pumped full of chemicals for their entire lives and trained in isolation just so that they can show up on a given field on a given day and aggrandize a given country, like that for me isn't what sports are about, right? Um, and so the success of sports to a degree has, has undone um, the virtue, right? Because it's at some point – at some point along the line, we sort of decided – and this was in the late 19th century and the early 20th century – that we could take people who had been taken off of farm labor and put into cities and kind of felt like they were run down, didn't have anybody stand up for them, nothing to do, organize them – churches started doing this in England – organize them into sports leagues, like get them to do something, like get them to feel proud of something, right? And then like, oh, OK, by being good at this sport, like I can be proud of myself and proud of my neighborhood and like I can fight for something and I can show my own like commitment and it shows a bunch of good personal qualities and I can get awesome at it. And, and the, the goodness at sports becomes an indicator for other things that are good. Right. And, and it becomes like a reinforcing of positive trends. Now, this is still true in much of sport where like in much. And I mean sport in a grand sense of like I go to a high school basketball game or like I go to play club frisbee or even like a lot of different Olympic events or pro- professional events. But there are a lot of sports where it's just like the indicators are not the underpinning indicators are not so much there anymore. Right. Like like the sport has become an end in itself. For so many people uh, and for so much money, and I'm not talking about the athletes. I mean like the people who build the infrastructure around sport that you really wonder like that connection that we had before that caused us to create the system in the first place seems pretty well severed. And it's sort of like the last step to make people that much better is to sever that connection. And I wonder whether Miss America is similar to that in that at some point um, it was it was really like to be to be like – you know, in a beauty pageant and to be beautiful um, in that sense and to be able to play an instrument and do this other stuff, like you're trying to lift yourself up and, and elevate yourself and feel better about yourself. And yes, there's like entrenched structural sexism going on, but I'm not willing to condemn entire hundreds and thousands of years of humanity to like total, total like look down my nose on absolutely everything they ever did. They're awful completely ever because of their great social sins that they did. Yeah, like, right. absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, though, like, until until the I, until the seventies, you know, all people were barbarians. No, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, like, maybe this is an example of people, given the structure that they have to deal with, trying to better themselves. I don't necessarily see that anymore, right? I mean, I guess, and again, it's like maybe in the mid level, maybe in the high level. I don't know, but there's this sense that there's this like version of it that takes place. Well, what you're talking about, Pete, is, I mean, we can we can say these things like, um, you know, I don't know, like sports, because we have a kind of sentimental connection to uh, uh, to the values that, you know, they, they might have been meant to inculcate at, at one point. But what you're mm. talking about is, is maybe the central characteristic of postmodern society, isn't it? In other words, what you're talking about is more or less the plot of, of The Wire. You know, that it's... <laughs> Right. That is to uh, say, you went there. You know, that is to say, at a certain point, um, at a certain point, institutions become uh, self-perpetuating. You know, and right. and it becomes more about the the um, uh, perpetuation of the institution. The the interesting thing seems to be that as an institution, global capitalism seems to subsume all other institutions, uh, kind of under its umbrella, and. Um, uh, you know. I mean, I, I would I would not say that global capitalism is one institution, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, I, I'm thinking of it, I guess, in kind of a uh, two X Filesy away, where there's a you know smoke filled room of of uh, craggy white men, you know, sitting. Oh, around, no, there are. It's just more than one. There's just not just one room where everybody's doing that. Yeah, but you know what? All those all those all those rooms send their representatives to a bigger room, you know, and then and to oh, a still bigger room. Yeah, yeah. That that's the thing where where I think people get lost. They sort of want to draw this big circle around the top of it and being like, and then they do all the stuff. <laughs> and it's like no, it's complex at the top too. Like the things that people do at the top of of global capitalism are are, are very complex and and in themselves also like have a lot of various institutions vying with each other and i'm sure that they have the same issues with the stuff that they're dealing with as we do but i don't yeah, want to get too much absolutely competing yeah. yeah well right exactly you know what i mean like putting about putting down a peasant revolution pete it used to be about a lot of laudable characteristics in society <laughs> you know? now we just now we just do it because putting down peasant revolutions is what we do 
Are you kidding? Like uh, they tr- the peasant revolutions that are going on right now, like people are really worried about them. <laughs> like like, and there's a lot of people on all levels of society that are working really hard. And now, I mean, peasant revolution. I'm mostly referring to the stuff that is happening in Tunisia and in uh, Ivory Coast, which is the big news these days, right? Like, and calling them peasants isn't very nice. Um, but these like po- these like um, flashpoints of protest. <laughs> well, I did. Gov- so I'm glad I. Oh. Did. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I was speaking of notional peasants, of course. Oh. Right. You're you're I thinking can, of like peeing peasants and I not peasants hedge. in the. I can hedge. Rabbit. Yeah, I can. I can hedge in that. I was making a joke in the abstract. It's a joke well, about here, me, racism, Pete. I'm not a. I'm not a dirty racist myself. I was. Here's another. Here's a. Let's take this idea in a slightly different direction. Slightly different direction because I was thinking about this the other day and I wanted to bring it up on the podcast because there's one institution that that for me like exemplifies this trend of like. We built ourselves up and built ourselves up to the point where we created an obligation that we're now like so driven to meet that we can no longer abide by our previous the principles. The Girl Scouts of be- America. The U.S. federal no. government. I was actually going to say Hershey Park. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because as you, as you full well know – uh, chocolate, as you, and if you don't know this, you should. Um, if you go and buy chocolate at the store now, less and less of it is chocolate, right? Like, and there have been a lot of debates in Congress about naming things as chocolate. And um, where I think, due to like big public outcry, like organized public outcry in the last few years, um, a lobbying effort to remove the regulation that requires things called chocolate to have cocoa in them, uh, uh, like that effort succeeded and it, the regulation stood. But it's pretty much only a matter of time until it's gone, right? Because uh, there's so much money in it for the chocolate companies to not have to put chocolate in their chocolate anymore and to just make it with artificial flavorings and soy products and corn products. So you make it out of, out of, um, you know, hydrogenated soybean oil and various like soy derived, you get the carbs, you get the carbs from corn, you get the, you get the uh, fat from uh, soybeans or the protein or rather the protein and the fat from soybeans. And yeah, yeah, you put artificial flavors and colors in it. Yeah, and now here's the the thing that must make it so frustrating. And so, if you've ever been to Hershey Park, right? Uh, and I don't know if they they probably still do this. They do the tour of like how chocolate is made, sure. right? And it's like amazing, futuristic, but still mythologized experience where it's like this is cocoa butter, this is chocolate, it's co- co- cocoa beans, and all this other stuff coming together and making the chocolate. Like there are so many times where lobbying groups go to Washington and get the re- the regulations repealed on calling a food a given thing. Right. Like I'm sure that, you know, you don't have to call it. There was a regulation attempted in, I think, the 60s or early 70s to make it so that if you sold bread that wasn't actually bread, it was called imitation bread. But they struck it down and now you can't really buy real bread in very many places. Um, But uh, but people fought back on chocolate. And the reason – and people fought back and they're like, no, if I buy chocolate, I want it to actually have chocolate in it. And the reasoning here must be like confounding for the people who actually run these companies because there's really nothing all that special about chocolate, right? Like chocolate is just a bean that they put in stuff to flavor it. But because of Hershey Park and the mythology of chocolate and like the business of chocolate drove this huge chocolate promotion machine and like all the, the – like, oh, Cocoa Krispies or whatever has chocolate in it. Like this cereal has chocolate in it. Like, oh my god. Cocoa Pebbles, like it's like it's like a revelation. It's like you know physical and spiritual heaven. It's chocolate. It's like every woman's substitute for love, and every man's like substitute for their parents. And it's just like it's this powerful cultural spiritual force. It's not. It never was really. But there's this cultural like thing that was built around it to sell chocolate. And now these companies find themselves in this unfortunate situation where they don't want to sell you chocolate anymore. Like they want to take advantage of the mythology that they've built around it, but they know that chocolate isn't that special they just don't they want to stop using it right and because they want to use stuff that's cheaper and has the same effect um and we went in addition to a variety of health problems, but I won't go into that. So it's like it's kind of funny. It, it seems to me that that feels very similar to the idea, the problem of Miss America, where the people who run Miss America are like, like we're trying to make it feminist, like we're trying, but you guys loved it too much, and we have to keep the evening gowns, you know? We don't know what to do, and it's like, uh, or maybe they're not trying, you know? We like have to, we have seem- to destroy the swimsuit competition in order to save it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Where it's like you're just driving this runaway train and like Denzel Washington ain't there to stop it with, for you with Captain Kirk. Like they're not there to pull the lever. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just – I felt that that – thinking about that, I like laughed and I cried because it's like – it's a big myth. Like chocolate is such a big myth. And I was thinking, uh, well, I was thinking about – well, right. Now, now, you know, they're all the sort of artisanal, right? You know, when, when, uh, when hipsters – That's my new favorite meaningless word, by the way, artisanal. Oh, yes. Like, or, <laughs> it is, oh, man. It is so meaningless that I pronounce it artisanal. 
yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you, do but you, artisanal means made by people, right? As made, opposed to no, like it means my it means made by artisans. You know what I mean? It means like made by the most skilled craftsmen of their type. Uh, well, it's, I thought it was just question begging because it's made by people who make stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> like it's, that's just a circular argument. Like that's like a that's lot nothing. of our like a lot of our podcasts. It's an exercise in question begging. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was thinking of of, uh, of the Girl Scouts as a, uh, you know of America as another example of this, where you know the uh, the cookie sale right starts off as a way to fund their other laudable activities, and it still may be that. But there's so much uh, infrastructure now that goes into the cookie sale. Um, yeah, you know that it really is. Uh, I, oh, I heard someone say, and I'm not going to attribute this, right, because I didn't I, – I forget where I heard it or who was being quoted. But, you know, if you looked at our um, – uh, if you looked at our big universities in America, you would say that they are uh, small financial institutions uh, whose main goal is uh, managing a pool of investments. And they run yeah. a, uh, a small educational racket on the side to adjust yeah. the liquidity of the portfolio. You know? Yeah, I mean, yep, I think yep, yep. I think I, I've talked about that a lot. I don't know who who said it to you originally. I I often say that Harvard is a hedge fund with a university attached to it. With, attached to you it, can yeah. you substitute that with any of the other top ten universities, private universities of the United States. Private, yeah, yeah. private universities, right? Absolutely. Now, I also can't talk too much about. I have to scale back because if I talk too much about the financial industry, I get in trouble at work. So I have to be careful about that no, stuff. No, no, we don't. I mean, we don't mean to. to sorry, we don't. Uh, I didn't mean to put you on shaky ground, Pete. Oh no, no, no but but it's interesting because it does show that like you build up an institution to support. The, the mission, but the institution becomes so large and demands so much resources and support, and the more resources and support you put into it, then the more the people who work for it are going to want more resources and support, and the more the focus shifts to it. Well, so that, right, yeah, like... Right, which was my answer with the federal government. Uh, was not a joke earlier. It is, uh, yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah. God, that is what's going on with, our, with the government. Where you just keep sinking, you sink money into it, and you grow the system, and you grow the system, and then the system, and then creating and, provi- and providing for and subsiding the supporting the system becomes what it's all about which again it's funny because like award shows are often seen as that but i feel like um award shows i don't know they, i think that hollywood is slowly adjusting to these new realities of like piracy and like of uh of like the award shows like like interesting on their own right and not just like a hollow shell cookie sh- cookie sale you know what i mean like they're trying to make the award shows into these entertainment things although i guess like all of the stuff like extra and access hollywood and all that are nonsense are part of that sort of carcass that's hanging around it i don't know um yeah well, but yeah I mean, yeah yeah it's interesting that i mean it's interesting that you bring up uh, the piracy i mean the, this this conversation is one that is had around awards time every year because it it's this extremely protracted and it's become this incredibly expensive um uh, time, uh, sort of time in Hollywood, and you know it began with with Harvey Weinstein, right? Who created the modern Oscar campaign, and he um, he uh, uh, for Shakespeare in Love, right? Was like the yeah, first I think yeah, I think ninety seven, yeah, Shakespeare in Love was yeah. the movie that. Um, uh, you're talking about the whole four-year consideration ads that show up in Variety and other uh, entertainment publications? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we and, that Shakespeare in Love was like the first movie that we can think of that really conspicuously won an award because it was campaigned for and not because of like people actually thinking that it was the best. Right, and that this was a this was a um, this was a competitive advantage. I mean, this was this is a way to uh, compete in the market for a small studio, Miramax. Um, you know, to sort of differentiate its offerings. Like if we, you know, if we can get an Academy Award for for our movie, then we can be more more successful in the market. And it has since become the norm, you know? And it's, it's right. sometimes even written into contracts, f- uh, you know, at, at various levels for certain movies that there will be an Oscar campaign for it and, and uh you know, and things and things like this, or that you know the star agrees to do to do publicity for it. So there's this whole. I mean, it's you know, it's like Hollywood gets into this whole thing, um, uh, this whole thing uh, where they're two. It's a two class system, right? Where there there are the movies that make money, you know, your summer tentpole movies, and then uh, and your kind of exploitation movies like you know chick flicks and and um, movies targeted at niches of the audience, and then there are your um, Academy movies, you know, your, your prestige films, which you yeah. know, now uh, um, so, uh, cost um, so much money to promote that it, it you know, the, the kind of the original rationale uh, of, um, you know, making money <laughs> off the movie by, by winning in an award can't possibly hold true because the, the award is too, is too expensive to purchase. But 
This year, <laughs> I, I, let me read a couple of, of, uh, of box office statistics this year. And these are domestic box office statistics and I've, I, uh, numbers. And I've argued against using these because, you know, yeah. a movie, any, as a measure of a movie's success, um, uh, right, Belinky has a bunch of times said on the podcast, well, you know, that movie didn't make its money back, so it's a, it's a failure. And it's like, well, you know, the foreign rights were probably sold before frame one of the movie was shot. It had probably paid for yeah. itself at that point. Anyway, yeah. um, True Grit. Cost, uh, production budget, uh, just shy of $40 million, uh, made uh, to date $126 million at the box office. Um, Black Swan. Uh, production budget thirteen million. Uh, domestic gross to date seventy two million. The fighter production budget twenty five million. Domestic gross to date sixty five million. Um, these are a much better return on investment than uh, you know a-, a team was. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, that is to say, if the uh, you know uh, if the if because they're cheap, they're cheap movies. Because they're cheap movies yeah. to make, and it you know it turns out that the ones that I named are pretty good, and people have you know people have responded to them. True Grit actually like actually legit won a couple of box office weekends uh, after after Christmas and early in the new year. Yep. And I mean, yeah, okay, January is a wasteland for um, it's where you put the trash out, but you know, mm-hmm. never mind. You know, it it won movies with uh, with eight figure. Uh, uh, with eight-figure box office takes, so in 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 a, in a way, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, the you know the last year, the Academy Award Best Picture nominations were increased to ten uh, slots to um, basically because of the Dark Knight, right? Like the, you know a a, yeah. uh, a very a very interesting, very smart, sort of extremely artful and well-made commercial movie couldn't horn in the year before, and so. Um, you know, and so okay, you put you put ten movies up there, right? And yeah. um, uh, but now you know the the movies that are critical and commercial successes, at least as far as return on investment is concerned, uh, seem to be these you know these smaller pictures, which are actually kind of good and interesting, uh, rather than rather than the quote unquote properties, which are um, I don't know which which we're kind of fatigued from. We kind of seem fatigued mm. from. Yeah. I want. I wanted to read um, one for your consideration, uh, Oscar. Oscar advertisement, which I really like. Um, it's a touching ode to male friendship at its most primal, and this is this is a real advertisement I, that really oh, ran. I always like, thought variety. this was a joke. I, I always thought yeah. that this was that this was a play for their DVD release. But okay. No, oh, of course no. it is. But I think it's still serious. The Washington Post. From a conceptual standpoint, it's a thing of what can only be described as beauty, variety. They seem to be exploring with degrees of knowing and naivete some of the same surrealistic terrain described by Louis Buñuel in his memoir, My Last Sigh, the New York Times. A touching saga about a group of middle-aged pranksters trying to recapture their distant youth, Los Angeles Times. The only live-action movie to expand the bounds of the format since Avatar. Boston Globe. 3D live action. Movie, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, jackass 3D. <laughs> For your consideration in the following categories Best Picture, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, which is funny because they're naked all the time, Directing, <laughs> Film Editing, Makeup, Original Score, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, and Visual Effects. <laughs> so, yeah, that's part of the. the so, so, Jackass 3, as they call it in this advertisement, actually, Jackass 3D, ran this like. You know, fake Oscar campaign is a way of promoting their Blu-ray DVD release, and I think it was hilarious yeah. and awesome. Um, definitely, definitely. Um, and it just sort of shows how I think people are starting to, you know, really, you know, people are, are digesting Oscar promotion as like, and it's no longer this sort of secret thing. It's like no longer a strategy. It's now just like another part of the business, another part of the show. And the fun thing about running show business is that if it's revealed that part of your uh, business is just artifice, well, that's great because your whole business is artifice. So you can just lump it in there and everything's fine. <laughs> Whereas it's a lot different, different if you're like making shoes and it's realized that like, you know, React Juice doesn't really do anything, right? Like, or that like, <laughs> you know, the Reebok pump. What? Wearing these sandals <laughs> is not going to take my flabby ass and turn it into a rock hard solid. Oh my god, those shoes. Those <laughs> shoes. So let me get this straight. So the idea behind these shoes is that they are shoes that make it harder to walk so that you burn more <laughs> calories and exert yourself harder whilst walking. <laughs> what not, possibly not only go wrong? they make it harder to walk, they make it harder to stand still because they're like yeah. rockers. They're like rocking chairs. So, you know, stand You know what I could do? I could I could not wear shoes. How about that? <laughs> that makes it a lot harder to walk around. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Uh, we were talking about shoes that have no that don't work as shoes. 
<laughs> oh, man. Well, if you have anything that you would like to say about uh, award season, about the Golden Globes, about Miss America pageant, uh, about chocolate, about Girl Scout cookies, about the, um, you know, your own experience in a league uh, of club frisbee. Uh, you know, you can uh, email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com or call or text 203-285-6401. But why do that? We never get around to those emails and, and texts anyway. The thing- we will, eventually. Yeah, we, do we, but- we laugh at them for a long time, and then we talk. <laughs> we, forward them, we forward them to one another and mock you. Readers. Our readers no, should send us we don't mock you. Yeah, we... Not- Awesome. Okay, so email us. You can get me at rather at overthinkingit.com, Fenzel at Fenzel at overthinkingit.com, and Lee at Lee at overthinkingit.com. And actually all of the writers at last name at overthinkingit.com. Um, yep. So, hey, we welcome your emails. Uh, but the thing to do is to head on over to the comment thread uh, on the show notes, because that's where the good, dis- the good discussions uh, happen. A great one last week, and, um, and it's, a, it's a great trend that uh, our listeners kind of come and talk to each other and talk to us. And we, are, we monitor those, and we, you know, we uh, listen to them, and we, uh, we don't really ever implement any of the suggestions that they make, because, you know, uh, we're, we're only the second best boys. But, um, you, you know, <laughs> and we actually, we're very eager to hear what you have to say about this material. So come on over to the site. What site, you ask? Why? It's www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. You know you always keep saying what site you ask? Nobody ever really asks that. How do you right? know what they ask me, Mark Lee? <laughs> I see you've brought out your Sean Connery impression. I've brought out my Sean Connery. This wedding cannot continue. Unless you sound I am just like to give the bride worked in the of Charles. We need the dog, Indiana. <laughs> okay, fine. What do you expect me to do? Nothing, Mr. Bond. I expect you to end the podcast. <laughs> That's for blush for me. <laughs>